Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm LaToya Johnson, host for the New Books Network, and I'm here with Dr. Michael Jackson, an anthropologist, author, and senior research fellow in world religions at Harvard Divinity School to discuss his book, Friendship. In the book, Dr. Jackson explores the unpredictable interplay of mutability and mutuality in intimate human relationships and the critical importance of choice in forming friendships. He ruminates particularly on the complications of friendship and offers reflections on childhood friends, imaginary friends, lifelong friendships, and friendships with animals. Thank you for being here with me, Dr. Jackson. My pleasure, Latoya. Thank you. So I would like to just start. So friendship is part memoir, it's part theory, and it's part ethnography. Why did you decide to write the book and present it in that way? The book begins with uh, the death of a a very old and dear friend. And um, sometimes we're we're so moved by uh, by the death of people that we're close to that we feel a debt has been incurred. Um, we want to say something about them so that uh, they're not forgotten. And there's something even more mystical behind this. I think sometimes we feel that in writing about them, we somehow keep them alive, even though we know they're physically gone. So it's a bit like the photograph that we keep before us of, of uh, lost family members. And um, at the same time, um, a friend of mine uh, here had uh, moved from Cambridge to Western Massachusetts, and he was working on the correspondence and friendship between Walter Benjamin and Theodore Adorno, two of the uh, great German uh, mid-century intellectuals who had uh, fled uh, Nazi Germany and come and lived in United States during the war years. And um, and so we got to talking about the friendship and the complications of it and the uh, emotional uh, complexity of it. And the book began there. And in, the, in your prologue, you write that friendship is an ambiguous subject. Are you referring to the concept's meaning or the relationships in general? I, I think that both, uh, Latoya, I would say that uh, we get into trouble when we try to define words like friendship and love. Um, they're just too capacious to really do justice to all the things that we pack into them or mean by them, all the connotations they have for us. And, um, and and so it is with what we call friendship or what we call love. Um, it's, it's riven by um, often dissension as well as agreement. Um, it's, um, deep, it's a deeply uh, um, intimate and, uh, and, and caring relationship, but at times there can be a falling out, um, uh, disenchantment irritation, annoyance, and sometimes our friendships lapse for many years and uh, and we return to them. 
so they have a very checkered career when you when you examine them over time and that's something which drove me to write about personal friendships and not just keep the book um on the abstract plane as as a kind of philosophical disquisition on the nature of friendship or something like that which is what most scholars do they they keep themselves out of the picture oh yes and uh, just to expound on the, that changing, the changingness of friendships in those relationships. You mention elective affinity. Um, there's a, 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 I want to say a chapter on that. Can you, can you talk about the concept a little bit and how it applies to establishing non-familial closeness with others? Yeah, the the term comes from uh, Goethe's uh, book by the same name, which is a novel, um, and um, and I, I'm not sure he's the first to broach this analogy between our relationships with people that we're drawn to, and chemical bonds. But the the book does have a, um, a lot of uh, reflections on the fact that uh, certain. Uh, I don't know, I'm not a chemist, so I don't know the right vocabulary here, but but certain kind of chemical elements are drawn to one another and others are repelled by one another. <laughs> so it's what we call love and hate, which seems to have an analogue in the, in, the, in the world of, uh, of non-human particles. And um, it's a way in which we can talk about the, the complexities of friendship. But elective affinities mean that we sometimes choose, as you said in your introduction, we choose relationships. And it's often these chosen relationships we refer to as friendships, whereas kinship relationships, which are equally close in many cases, um, we feel that they are visited upon us by, by simply by birth. Uh, we, we don't choose our families. We're thrown into our families, as it were, from outer space. <laughs> and often when we come to consciousness, we, we say that one of the first things we say is, um, how come I've been thrown into this <laughs> family? Um, the, the one down the road would have, would have appealed to me much more. Um, who's running this show? It doesn't seem right that I had no say in it. And it's very interesting in some of the West African uh, cosmologies that 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 I've uh, that I've studied. Um, you make a choice before you're born about the head you have, or the uh, the mind or spirit you have. So you come into the world um, having to. Uh, reckon with the fact that before you were even born, you made a choice and now you've got to live with it. <laughs> and getting around that prenatal choice um, constitutes the dynamic of everyday life. Uh, the, particularly people, the people in, in Nigeria, the Edo and the uh, Yoruba and the uh, uh, have, have really fascinating kind of ways in which they, they think about these kind of issues of fate and free will. And I love that you you segued into that because you, like I said earlier, the book is part memoir and you tell of a, a, a few stories of your time in West, West Africa and your encounter with Albert, which I thought was fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about why you wanted to include that particular story in Friendship? 
Well, five years before I went to Sierra Leone to begin um, ethnographic work as an anthropologist, I was a student at Cambridge at the time. Um, I had worked as a volunteer for the United Nations in the Congo, which was then in the throes of a civil war. And um, a colleague in the United Nations um, had been sent back to Europe when things looked very, very bad in the capital city. It, it, it appeared that it might be overrun by insurgents at any moment. And uh, this is a kind of sexist thing in a way. They chose women and children to be sent home while the men allegedly sort of tougher and able to withstand anxiety better um, <laughs> were, were stayed behind to mind the fort. And um, so she asked me, this woman that I call Martha, she asked me if I would uh, mind her apartment while she was back in Switzerland. And I was staying in a, a fairly sleazy hotel room um, downtown, and I, I accepted the offer. But in doing so, I had to look after or had to kind of pay and, um, and uh, relate to her servant her boy as uh, this is uh, for somebody who was raised in a very egalitarian sort of world in New Zealand. This was anathema to me. And so I found myself locked in this struggle to kind of work out um, a decent relationship with a fellow human being who happened to be as old enough to be my father. So it was a respectful relationship as well as a decent one. Whereas he was insisting on staying um, a, a servant, and uh, and me treating him as a boy, and um, this never was fully resolved. This relationship, um, and years later, when I hired uh, Noah Marah, this young man my own age, uh, to help me in my research in, in northern Sierra Leone. Um, my relationship with Albert sort of came back to haunt me because the last thing I wanted to do was for my relationship to Noah to participate in this kind of master-servant uh, complex. Uh, and since this is the late 1960s, only nine years after Sierra Leone had become independent, people were still, in a sense, stuck in the past, um, thinking that uh, you know a white man was a person who had some authority, um, would demand respect even if he didn't command it, and uh, and and Noah, in a sense, had grown up with white colonial authorities uh, pushing their weight around and looked upon as. Uh, potential patrons who would uh, would help them um, get an education or or perhaps even get work and so we were kind of uh, foreshadowed by the colonial regimes that had uh, um, dominated Sierra Leonean life for, for two or three hundred years and uh, working out a way getting a, working our way out of this was in a sense a way in which we were in our own relationship, deconstructing all the kind of horrific inequalities that came with the colonial period. When when one thinks of friendship, the thing that comes to mind is mutual trust and camaraderie. But in the book, you write about the politics of friendship, which I see is very prevalent in the, the relationship 
you were trying to establish with Albert. What are the politics of friendship? What do you, what do you... This goes back to Aristotle's great work on, on friendship, um, which I have many, many disagreements with. Uh, the, the critical assumption that Aristotle um, builds his essay on and bequeaths to uh, the European intellectual world thereafter is that uh, friendship is a political virtue. That is to say that in an ideal uh, political state or nation, uh, friendship will be the dominant way in which people interact. They may not uh, be members of the same family, but uh, friendship is something you can choose as a virtuous way of interacting with others. The trouble is Aristotle's world, the one that is background to his writing, is a hierarchical world in which there are slaves, servants, and women who are not considered to be within this kind of compass of friendship. So even though he doesn't declare it openly, he's talking about um, a male elite. And... um, some 20th century philosophers like Hannah Arendt that I like very much um, um, tried to rethink the possibility of friendship or even love becoming a political virtue. Can you create a nation state based on these kinds of affective ties, these elective affinities? And she was very, very adamant that, that you could not it was a kind of pipe dream. It was wishful thinking to think that people could love each other. This goes against the grain of a lot of Christian thought, of, of course, which thinks that not only communities and families can love one another, but people in a nation state like the United States can love one another. Well, history shows that this is impossible, and our contemporary political kind of landscape shows that it it, it, it may be um, even more impossible than we ever thought it could be. Um, so this is a realist picture of, of, uh, of friendship as a political virtue. But this throws us back into friendship as a virtue that associated with our interpersonal life, our, our relationships with, uh, with the people, the individuals we think of as friends the people we trust, the people that we help out in times of trouble, um, like the friendship between soldiers that um, is formed under grueling conditions on a battlefield where without thinking they will go to the aid of fellow soldiers, even though it's part of the military ethos, they will do it without a moment's thought. They're not motivated by the ethos. They're motivated by something far more profound so it's possible to, to have friendship in communities, but uh, how large the scope of it um, is, is is a matter of some debate. We are recording on Memorial Day, and so I don't want to go through the interview without mentioning your friend, Les. Yes. Who is an Army active duty member in World War One. Two. Two, World War II, yes. And you write extensively about him in friendship. Why was it important for you to include Les and his story in you guys' interaction? Yeah, the 
the crux of it is his friendship with um, um, a fellow infantryman um, called Ted Shearer. They they fought from the foot of Italy right up to the to northern Italy in 1944, and um, on the last day of um, battle. Uh, in northern Italy, uh, his close friend and only surviving friend at that stage from his unit was shot dead beside him in a paddy field in northern Italy. And Les was so um, traumatized by this event that he did not want to live. I think this is a compelling evidence that with our friends, like those we love, their life is uh, is an extension of our own life. If they go, we want to go too, or we want to somehow keep their life going through these magical and ritual actions that I referred to in relationship to uh, Keith at the beginning of, of, of our session today. So Les uh, went and climbed... Uh, Mount Blanc in the uh, in the French Alps uh, without proper climbing gear. It was a suicidal thing to do, but it was a sign of how desperately um, grief-stricken he was. And um, and so I wanted to build something more than just this one relationship um, in this chapter, and so I wanted to talk a little about my friendship with with Les, how that came about and and the nature of that that friendship and how the war was always peripheral to our friendship because he didn't talk about the war until very, very late in his life when uh, he finally did begin to talk to me about about those experiences. And do you how did that change your friendship in a way that you've had that that long period? of this looming thing being a part of his life, but you two not talking about it, then him deciding to bring you in? I'm not sure it it changed our friendship, Um, but it's it's always been something that, that I've felt compelled to do. My wife teases me all the time, why do you watch so many Holocaust um, documentaries? and I think it's the same kind of thing might be said um, in African-American families. Why are you so obsessed by slavery? <laughs> uh, I think there are certain kind of historical events that we feel compelled to re-engage with time and time again, because by doing so, um, we keep ourselves honest, as the saying goes. We keep ourselves close to a, some, I don't know, some fundamental measure of what is real, what is possible, what is terrible about the human condition. And um, that old adage, lest we forget, which uh, props up on you know, Veterans Day and Memorial Day here and in other countries, um, we often don't ask ourselves, well, um, sure, it's important to remember, but how are we going to remember? What do we do 
in order to remember. And, and some people take that further. What do we do so that it doesn't happen again? And I think we all work out our own way of, of performing this act of commemoration. But behind the commemorative function, I see this other function of uh, staying close to something that human beings have done in history that they are bound to do again unless we're vigilant, unless we're mindful of the possibility, not only in the uh, nation that we belong to, but in ourselves. What aspect of writing friendship fascinated you the most? Can you say that again, Latoya? What, What aspect of writing friendship fascinated you the most? Was there something that came to you that you hadn't thought about in a long time and you were like, oh my gosh, that came to me. I think I'm going to write about it. I think it was an accumulation of things. Um, Several of the close friendships that I talk about in the book um, are with people that have passed on. I don't think I I write about um, any people that are still alive, apart from my son, who was, uh, I think, uh, three at the time that I'm writing about him. He's now 31. (laughs) Uh, So I I obviously had to seek his approval. (laughs) Um, I I said, do do you want the world to kind of know that uh, even at 31, you can be talked about as you were when you were three <laughs> and um, he had no, no no problems with that I hope that remains true but it's always tricky talking about people um, as if you um, you can assume the responsibility for talking about somebody else um, and um, basically take that responsibility away from them or that right away from them that's always a problem for a writer writing about uh, real people, living people, or even dead people doing justice to them. What, what, would, what do you want readers to take away from friendship? I want people to be open to the extent to which friendship is far more complicated than it would appear to be when it's just summed up in a glib phrase or a glib image. Um, I can I can express this perhaps by talking about my search for a cover image for the book. Um, I went on uh, Google Images, and of course there were thousands of images of clasped hands. Uh, reaching across, uh, you know, the oceans or across uh, the great barriers and uh, and joining hands with somebody else or dancing in a circle. And these are so cliched that they rob us of any kind of entry into um, thinking about or talking about friendship in a more nuanced, a more capacious and complicated way. And then my daughter, who's a painter, I have two daughters, my my younger daughter, um, had uh, painted this uh, picture from a photograph that she had taken when when we made a trip back to uh, my homeland, New Zealand, um, of two trees on either side of a road. And I suddenly thought, well, this is a nice image of friendship. The, The two trees are very, very different. 
Um, and there's a road between them, and to some extent they're there because there's a, a road. They are, uh, they've grown up beside the road. They're on the road, as we might say. They're different, but they, they're kind of leaning toward each other. They seem to echo and, uh, and mimic each other in certain ways. So I thought this was a nice image that is both um, captures something about friendship, but also kind of is open to thinking about friendship as taking place between people who are very different. And in many of the friendships I explore in, in my book, they begin by an observation that um, this friendship um, is one which many people would have considered impossible because it's with somebody from a radically different culture or tradition, somebody from some other ethnicity, somebody who is uh, not my gender, etc., etc. And I think this is this is one of the really fascinating things for me, that friendship seems to transcend all these lines of division that we so busily draw between us as human beings. And, and having drawn the line of division, we say, well, there's two essences here on either side of the line, and never the twain shall meet. They're totally incompatible, essentially, as well as existentially. And... Ethnography has taught me that this is not the case necessarily, unless you want it to be the case, unless you want to tell yourself that this is the way the world is. Um, but if you want to kind of explore other possibilities of living in the world in which these lines do not have any absolute um, determinative power, then here is some evidence in support of that possibility. Thank you so much, Michael, for, for, for chatting with me. Friendship is out. Go read. What, like I said, it is, there is a great deal of memoir in it and it's, it's very interesting. Thank you so much, Dr. Jackson. Thank you, Latoya. It's been a pleasure talking to you.